Welcome to Neuroscience CME TV, your personal link to the most widely recognized experts in the dynamic world of the neurosciences. Independently developed by CME Outfitters, the award-winning accredited provider of continuing education in Rockville, Maryland. Welcome, and thank you for joining us for today's education activity, Risky Business, Understanding and Attenuating Risk Associated with Disease-Modifying Therapy in Relapsing Remitting Multiple Sclerosis. This neuroscience CME activity is brought to you by CME Outfitters, a best-in-class accredited provider of continuing education for clinicians across the globe. Be sure to share this link with your colleagues or team members who were not able to join us today, and I encourage you to visit the website for additional educational activities and patient resources. I'm Dr. Michael Rackey. I'm a professor of neurology and neuroscience at The Ohio State University and I've worked in the area of multiple sclerosis for more than 30 years. I'm looking forward to discussing the factors that we and our patients deem most important when selecting treatments for relapsing or remitting multiple sclerosis and when talking about risk. We need to thoroughly understand risk ourselves and to be able to accurately convey those risks to our patients as we implement a process of shared decision-making to best arrive at the best possible individualized treatment plans. With me to discuss these topics are our experts, Dr. Patricia Coyle and Dr. Brant Oliver. Dr. Coyle is from the Stony Brook University Medical Center in Stony Brook, New York, where she is Professor of Neurology and Vice Chair of Clinical Affairs, as well as the Founder and Director of the MS Comprehensive Care Center. Welcome, Pat. Delighted to be here. Dr. Oliver is an Assistant Professor in the School of Nursing at Massachusetts General Institute of Health Professions in Boston, Massachusetts and an adjunct assistant professor in the Dartmouth Institute of Health Policy and Clinical Practice. And he practices at the MS Specialty Care Program in Concord, New Hampshire. Welcome, Brandt. Pleasure to be here. Today's activity includes a unique perspective. We have put the voice of the patient literally and figuratively in the center of this program. In the initial step of our development process, I worked with the folks at CME Outfitters to design a survey we sent to key thought leaders. But these were not academicians, researchers, or practicing clinicians. Our thought leaders were patients with relapsing multiple sclerosis who are extremely active in social media and in online MS communities. Their voices represent the voices of more than 400,000 people living with MS. We asked these leaders to share their thoughts with us on the very topics that we will be discussing today. Throughout this program, you will see and hear what they have to say. So, let's get started. Today, we are going to tackle when selecting disease-modifying therapy for a specific patient, how to include the mechanism of action of treatment and its safety profile in the decision-making process. 
But before we see what our patients had to say, we want to know what you, our healthcare provider audience, think. Pat and Brant, this is the first question we're going to ask our audience. What level of importance does mechanism of action play in your decision making with regard to disease-modifying therapy and relapsing MS? Is it A, the single most important factor? B, it is very important. C, it is somewhat important. D, it is not very important. Or E, it doesn't matter at all. Please take a minute to respond and we'll share with your answers later in our discussion. Pat, where does mechanism of action rank in your priorities when you're deciding on a new treatment or needing to make modifications for a patient that's already on treatment? Very low. I almost never consider it except perhaps in staging or if an MS patient has prior immunocompromise. Now I will comment understanding mechanism of action may be critically important if it gives us new insights into the pathophysiology of MS and when and if we develop treatment response biomarkers we may actually choose a specific mechanism of action because we understand that the patient will respond best to it but right now I scarcely ever use it as a factor. Brant, do you have anything else you want to add? Uh, sometimes mechanism of action can help us understand efficacy and risk profiles and to that extent I often find patients interested in it, in it at least to some degree uh, but there can be a lot of variability in what patients uh, want and need to know about mechanism of action uh, so aligning with what they need and when they need it can be helpful when educating patients. Okay so let's hear what our patients have to say about understanding the mechanism of action of their treatments and is it important to them. As you see here, we got a wide range of responses with some saying that the percentage of patients who understand the mechanism of their treatment is low to one person who feels that in patients with RRMS it is quite high at 75%. One thing we did hear consistently was that even though most people don't know it, they feel this is a very important topic that their doctors need to educate their patients about. Let's hear what one patient leader had to say. I think people actually care about what the mechanism of action of a drug is. They just don't know that that is the term associated with it. But in regards to like mechanism of action in general and how important it is, what the drug does and how it works in your body is really important to a lot of patients. Actually, I would say most veteran patients, people who have been diagnosed for a while now, they care about the molecular targets and what happens in their bodies. I think new patients just want a medication. They want something to make it better. They don't necessarily understand the details of the medications and how they work. But I think that that is something that happens to patients maybe who are on their second or third therapy. Pat, do you find that rather surprising? Um, I do, actually. I think knowledge is power, and I think to know more is very important. But gosh, we don't actually know how most of our MS disease-modifying therapies precisely work in manipulating the immune system. And I think if you had a, a treatment that is dynamite, well-tolerated, safe, and you had no idea how it worked, everybody would still want to be on it. Brant, what do you have to think, say? Well, what struck me about the patient comment was that patient and provider perspectives on mechanism of action may be different, and aligning those two can be very important, and uh, shared decision-making, which we'll be talking about later, could help um, uh, move that forward. So let's review the mechanism of action of today's available disease-modifying therapies for relapsing MS. 
We'll also cover a few of those that are in the pipeline. This is a video of the T cells in the bloodstream and to the right of the slide you can see the central nervous system. As you see a T cell about to enter, the first thing that happens is it's captured by adhesion molecules and then enters the brain. This is where natalizumab and beta interferon probably have their important mechanism of action. Once the T cell enters the brain, it be they begin to proliferate and they begin to secrete cytokines like tumor necrosis factor. And you can see here, we now see that there's some evidence of demyelination. So cytokines is another important area. B cells are now also beginning to be appreciated as an important part in the MS pathogenic process. Here we see a B cell making antibodies and then also causing damage to the myelin. It's probably drugs like rituximab, ocrelizumab, and ofatumumab that actually target, although these are all drugs that really are in the pipeline for multiple sclerosis or off-label in its current use. If you think about some of the other drugs, they probably have other areas in terms of their mechanism of action. This slide shows the interaction of a T cell with antigen-presenting cells, and there have been a number of strategies, probably the best we think of in terms of drugs like dimethylfumarate and clitiram or acetate, which probably affect the cytokine secretion profile, trying to shift away from a pro-inflammatory process. In addition, if you think about all the immune uh, cells that are there, uh, drugs like alemtuzumab ex uh, basically target the entire immune system. And so it's quite an immunosuppressive agent. And I think that's something that also is important when one is thinking about that in terms of risk assessment. Pat, what do you think about the newer uh, drugs that are being investigated currently? Well, there are some very exciting uh, therapies that are targeted at the neurodegenerative or progressive phase of the disease, as well as very interesting CNS repair strategies. We can discuss them further when we get to the, the Q&A portion. But I just mentioned a humanized monoclonal anti-CD25 that's in front of the FDA right now, not approved yet, but maybe in the next couple of months, that targets the IL-2 receptor alpha chain. That's expressed on activated lymphocytes, but it appears that this monoclonal acts by affecting innate immunity, particularly natural killer cells where there may be an immunological biomarker to document that somebody is responding to the treatment and an increase in, in um, CD56 bright cells. And of course, the anti-CD20s with three different ones targeting B cells very likely will have one of those monoclonals approved in the next year and a very exciting development for MS. Thank you. That's very interesting, Pat. Let's go and see what our audience responded to our first survey question. What level of importance does mechanism of action play in making your decision-making process for DMT and MS? And I think what's interesting is if we look at these answers, the answers really are divided all across the board. In fact, the highest was, uh, it's very important. Uh, but you also had significant people saying it's somewhat important or not very important at all. Pat and Brent, does this data surprise you? Well, it does, and I still come back to the fact that I don't think we choose a DMT based on its mechanism of action. We use efficacy, tolerability, safety, and preferences of the patient. I just don't think the MOA is a critical feature. 
I'm actually uh, uh, encouraged by these results and that uh, when we talk about shared decision making a little bit later, it aligns with what we're seeing in other conditions. There's a wide variety of what people value in making decisions and uh, what people uh, need in a decision making process at any point in time uh, may differ across people. And uh, we'll talk more about that later with shared decision making. Okay, let's move on and talk through our decision making processes in DMT selection for a given patient. I think it goes without saying, we all consider the safety profile of each, each drug. And not surprising, our patients do as well. Our second patient survey question was, what factors influence patients' decision in weighing risk versus benefit? And as you see here, risk of treatment is very concerning to our patients. And one patient leader even points to us that we need to be educating patients about risk so that together we can make more informed decisions. Let's be honest, getting a diagnosis of MS is tough to hear, and then to hear all the risks and not really be able to put them into context is often very scary for patients. Let's hear what one patient leader had to say. I think it's highly individualized. Again, I think that it goes back to people, how far along they are in their MS journey. I think in the beginning, when people are maybe less educated or maybe just don't know enough about MS in general or about medications, they are less likely to really care about what risks are involved. They are just sort of, give me a drug, make it oral, make it easy. I don't want to do injections. And they just sort of want whatever will make this go away. I think that patients who have been on the block for a while are much more attuned to risks and are much more willing to weigh the pros and cons of medications versus not maybe necessarily the ease in which it is administered. It also depends on what those side effects are. If we're talking, you know, constant vertigo, people don't want that versus maybe like an upset stomach for a short period of time. I think the severity of the symptom, will it aggravate something else that I already have? And the time in which it lasts. Pat and Brant, what are your thoughts on this issue? Well, um, I think uh, when you have multiple options and there's not clearly a right treatment, risk-benefit ratio becomes very important, but you have to really individualize it to that particular patient. And I think if you have a, a bad prognostic profile, very active disease, clinical and MR, or you failed multiple DMT options, then generally you're willing to take more risk. I think that's a really good point, Pat, and uh, I heard loud and clear in that comment that there's really this interest in uh, need for the MS community to meet patients where they're at uh, in the disease process and also uh, what their needs are for the decision they're making at that time. And those needs may change and vary across individuals. As we get into talking about shared decision making later on, we'll talk about some approaches which may help. I think the other thing that was interesting is she brought up the point about it's very different for a newly diagnosed patient versus a patient who maybe has already been on a therapy and maybe has a much better understanding of the disease process. I think in order to have these meaningful discussions and help our patients understand the risks and benefits of treatment with the ultimate goal of optimal adherence, it's incumbent upon us to make sure that we understand the efficacy, benefits, and risks associated with each of the 13 approved therapies before trying to explain them to our patients. Let's see if there's any new data in this area. Pat, can you start the discussion on this topic? So this has gotten very complex. I divide them into three categories. And first, I discuss the first-line parenterals that date back to the 1990s. Very safe. We know exactly what they do. There's no long-term surprise toxicity. 
These consist of five interferon betas, which is a cytokine strategy. It's an anti-inflammatory regulatory cytokine. The major issues that one faces are flu-like reactions, which you can be preemptive about minimizing by dose escalating, pre-medicating, using an early evening dose. Injection site reactions, again, you can be preemptive to do things to minimize that. You do need to do some blood testing on liver enzymes, CBC with diff, and thyroid screen, but it's very rare to need to stop the interferon beta because of that. And then one should be aware that anecdotally, the interferon betas may be capable of worsening headache, depression, or spasticity. Um, so that's, that's one group. And then we have three different glutyramer acetates, or GAs. This is random polymers of a biophysical analog of myelin basic protein. Again, two very big endorsements. No laboratory testing needs to be done, no blood work, and the best pregnancy rating. And you're mainly dealing with injection site reactions, for the most part very benign, and then a, a completely benign but scary, if you don't recognize it, systemic reaction, immediate post-injection reaction, which is like a magnified panic attack but really has no consequence. So, you know, recently we had the in introduction of oral therapy. What do you think about those? So we have three oral pills or capsules. Uh, what they're lacking is long-term data, but the efficacy looks as good or maybe even a little bit better than the first-line parenterals. We can start with fingolimod, a once-a-day 0.5-milligram capsule. Now, if the MS patient has significant cardiac comorbidity or pulmonary comorbidity or diabetes, this may not be a best option because it can lower the heart rate, it can cause heart block in rare instances, and so you have to jump through a lot of hoops to get on fingolimod. Uh, you need to, th to think about the cardiac status. Um, you need to have an eye screen to rule out macular edema. You need to make sure you have antibodies to varicella zoster or you, or you need to get vaccinated before starting it. And you need six-hour monitoring on the first dosing. But once on it, patients do very well. We can then turn to teraflunamide, which comes in two doses, seven and 14 milligram pills once a day, although the 14 milligram is preferred. This is actually the active ingredient of an oral agent, leflunamide, that's been on the market since 1998 for rheumatoid arthritis. This has a more significant pregnancy warning, but there is a washout protocol to absolutely remove it from the MS patient's system. Otherwise, it can hang around. I do mention hair thinning in the first couple of months. You do need to pre-screen for TB uh, from TB endemic areas, and you do need to do a liver enzyme check monthly for the first six months, but really the liver toxicity this is a very well tolerated, and it doesn't have much in the way of liver toxicity. The third oral is a twice a day capsule, dimethyl fumarate. You only need to do a, a CBC with diff to get on it. It does have GI toxicity. Some patients have no problems, others can have very bad issues with abdominal pain, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, but there's a protocol to deal with that, and then flushing. There have been a handful of progressive multifocal leukoencephalopathy PML cases with dimethyl fumarate, it's a low risk for that, but it seems as though a sustained significant lymphopenia, 600 lymphocytes or below, may put a patient at risk, so we do pay attention to screening that in dimethyl fumarate. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Pat. You know, then we have the monoclonal antibodies, which we think of as the second and third line therapies typically. If we think about what the patients, though, are interested in, I think one of the things that's interesting about monoclonals is they we know what they're directed against, so it's a little bit different from some of the other agents. Uh, when you're thinking about a patient with aggressive form of MS, 
What do you think about uh, in terms of these agents and what you want to talk about to an MS patient? Can you talk to us about these, Pat? So th this third category are agents that inherently carry higher risk, although they have very high efficacy. So you have to give some thought about that. Does the patient really warrant taking the additional risk? Does their disease justify that? And if you and the patient agree that it does, then these can be very good options. And they include natalizumab, a humanized monoclonal against an adhesion molecule that's given uh, by IV infusion every four weeks. Extremely well tolerated, very good efficacy data, but this is the one that carries a much higher risk of PML. And so everything is factored around risk stratification and accurately conveying to the patient what their risk of PML. And there's a REMS program, the TOUCH program for that. Then we have alemtuzumab, which is the newest monoclonal, anti-CD52, drives down lymphocytes and monocytes. Uh, T-cells are driven down for several years, so you really are immunosuppressing. It's a very interesting treatment. You infuse it IV daily for five days in the first cycle. You don't treat again for a year, and then you treat daily IV for three days, and then you don't treat again unless you have breakthrough activity, and the patient may go years with great stability. This is a very high efficacy agent. It does carry some risks, however, and there's mandated four-year monthly monitoring with blood work and urinalysis to detect some of the immune-mediated complications, including thyroid disease, uh, ITP, a bleeding disorder, and very rarely kidney issues. So it's quite a commitment to go to that drug. And the third in this category is mitoxantrone, a cancer drug. This had the widest approval for all MS phenotypes with the exception of primary progressive MS. And the interesting feature is we virtually never use this anymore for MS for several reasons. Number one, it had a self-limited maximum dosing. You could only give it for about 11 doses and then never use it again because of increased risk of cardiotoxicity. Secondly, it can cause cardiomyopathy and decreased ejection fraction, and you have lifelong required cardiac monitoring if you use it at all. And thirdly, it had a treatment-related leukemia that was actually at higher risk than we originally thought. So for a variety of reasons, I think we never use this agent anymore. Thanks, Pat. Before we wrap up our program, I have one final question for you, our audience. In which of these four areas are you most in need of education related to the treatment of relapsing forms of multiple sclerosis? Is it A, mechanism of action of our current DMTs, B, risks and benefits of the DMTs, C, engaging patients in shared decision making, or D, understanding risk and explaining risk to your patients? We're creating a resource for clinicians that we hope will be a very valuable resource for both you as well as your patients. We are filming a short video for patients that will serve as a resource in explaining risk. Our hope is that clinicians will use this vet video and give it to their patients to help them explain risk and help them in their shared decision making. I also want to encourage you to visit neurosciencecme.com and cmeoutfitters.com for a comprehensive list of CME activities, clinical resources, outcomes research, and more. I also want to thank my colleagues for joining me today. Thanks again to Dr. Patricia Coyle and Dr. Brant Oliver for our very interesting and practical discussion. And thank you to our audience for joining us today. 
We sincerely hope that we were able to integrate the voice of the patient into our discussion of the risks and benefits of treatment for relapsing forms of MS with disease-modifying therapies. On behalf of CME Outfitters, I'm Dr. Michael Rackey, thanking you for joining us today. I hope you're able to incorporate the strategies we have discussed into improved care for your patients with relapsing forms of multiple sclerosis. <laughs>